you're in a situation where you are of means and you have stage four colorectal cancer in New Zealand and a doctor says, well, you know, they have a drug that could treat you for this, but it's not available here. Well, if I have a, an easily transportable family or I just have the money to fly over here, why not go to Florida or, you know, Cedar sinai or somewhere and just get treated with it? And that creates a really inequitable system. When you tell people that the whole reason why they are expecting to get cost savings out of this is because there's going to be a 20% cut in getting any kind of access, that's not that hard to absorb. Also, people understand the difference between this kind of crazy dialogue back and forth with policymakers in talking about cutting drug pricing and then the difference that they experience at the pharmacy counter. That's what people care about, what comes out of their pocket. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Rich Masters, Bio's EVP of Public Affairs, and you're listening to I Am Bio. This week, as the world's attention focused on the Capitol Hill insurrection riots, impeachment, and President Trump's culpability in the mob violence, today's I Am Bio podcast is going to be focusing on the damage the president sought to inflict on the biotech industry as he fought desperately to win an election. For four years, every time his political fortunes were in the balance, President Trump picked his favorite target, drug companies, to demonize to inflate his poll numbers. After years of threatening to blow up America's world-leading biomedical ecosystem, Trump announced an executive order in September that would do just that, using the friendly-sounding most favored nation, a term used most commonly for plum conditions the U.S. gives our top trading partners. Trump declared that U.S. government should pay the lowest price in the world for breakthrough medicines. What he was really asking for, however, was to institute foreign price controls, which study after study after study shows will result in far fewer new life-saving medicines being developed. The Trump executive order, hastily issued in September before an election with no opportunity for public comment, would only save insurance companies billions at the expense of cures for patients. Worse yet, this was all occurring as our scientists were working around the clock and risking billions of dollars to find cures and vaccines for a global pandemic. So Bio took the administration to court and blocked the order, and we've won, at least for now. Today in On Bio, we're going to break down what it all means and examine the policy threats ahead for scientists and researchers, and most importantly, patience. After all, the industry is humanity's greatest hope in this dark and dangerous time. Thrilled to be joined today by two guests who played a huge role in defending the biomedical ecosystem and our ability to continue our brisk pace of innovation in the pandemic. John Murphy is Bio's Deputy General Counsel and litigated the successful injunction against the Trump executive order in federal court. Sue Peshin is President and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. Her organization's mission is to accelerate the pace of scientific discoveries to improve the health of Americans as they age. Her organization filed a front-of-the-court brief opposing the price-fixing scheme, arguing it relies on the rationing of breakthrough treatments. John Sue, welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having us. 
John, let me start with you, because there's a lot of very confusing terms that we have out here. Most favored nation, uh, just to guarantee lowest drug prices, all that sounds good. You know how this would have the exact opposite of those friendly sounding names. Can you explain to us what this quote-unquote, most favored nation means and how it could impact patients. Yeah, so it, it really starts, Rich, with a, a misconception about how drugs are priced. And the, the most favored nation rule was effectively an uninformed idea whereby the government said, we have looked at the way drugs are priced in other countries and we recognize a trend whereby many similar drugs that are offered both here and in other countries are priced lower in certain European countries and Asian countries. And we think that's unfair. And at, at a broad brush, it does seem that way. But you have to unpack the way drug pricing operates on a global scale. In the United States, we as a country have made a decision that we want to favor access to new and innovative drugs as soon as they're demonstrated to be effective. And as a result, we're willing to facilitate patients getting that access in the United States at the expense of negotiating very, very, very significant discounts like some other countries do. And the byproduct of some of those foreign countries that negotiate extraordinarily low prices for their drugs is they do that by not allowing people to get access to them. So by ignoring all of the peripheral facts, uh, the government simply wanted to say, we're just going to institute price controls. It wasn't really about uh, a Greece price or a Latvian price or a European price. It was really just, we want to control prices. And we all know what happens. Uh, the biotech industry is so dependent on outside investor capital to get themselves from bench to bedside. And you know, venture capitalists, the public markets are extraordinarily savvy, and they're not willing to risk two, three, four billion dollars on a 10 year time horizon if they don't have some reasonable assurance that the drug can be accessed and paid for uh, once it uh, finally comes to market, if it comes to market. So, you know, most favored nation sounded really good when the president stood up and got to announce it because the vast majority of Americans, unfortunately, don't understand how drug pricing works in the United States. Sue, um, let me ask you this. You know, the uh, the Alliance for Aging Research is really at the forefront of pushing the uh, the pace of scientific discoveries. So when John talks about limiting access, can you give me an example? Americans have access to about 96% of all new oncology therapies within about two months when they get approved. Uh, in England, they only have access to 71% of new cancer medicines, and it takes about a year before they're available for use. In France, they have access to 68%, and there's a 16-month delay. New Zealand, which is also one of the most favored nation countries, only has access to 29% of new cancer medicines with a delay of about two years. So it really varies across the board, but the general kind of rule is that you're putting uh, access uh, behind cost savings, and that's typically not what the U.S. has been about. We also oppose international reference pricing 
in general, like the MFN rule and other types of proposals that have been out there, because it endorses a discriminatory cost-effectiveness standard that a lot of these other countries use. And that's why that also contributes to the delay. So many of the countries that are referenced in the Most Favored Nation rule, including the United Kingdom and Canada, make their reimbursement and coverage decisions based on quality-adjusted life years or qualies. And talking about health economics can make your eyes roll to the back of your head. But this kind of stuff is insidious, and it's, you know, at risk of getting adopted here in the United States. And it assigns a financial value to the patients for whom a given treatment's intended. So if you're older, if you have a disability, if you're a veteran, it typically will rate you as, you know, more expensive to care for. And a lot of times insurance companies will say, we can't cover it. So it has really, really important implications. This policy would have done that here in the United States. Sue Peshin is the president and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. Sue, that's amazing information. So, uh, you know, when people think of New Zealand, they think, okay, they're very much like the United States, right? They have, you know, but you're telling me that if you get certain types of cancer and you happen to live in New Zealand where there is very serious price fixing, that you only have access to less than a third of all the medicines that people in the United States have. Is that accurate? Yes, that's the whole idea of healthcare rationing. And most other countries are okay with it. The United States has generally not embraced that. We've embraced the idea that it's important to treat patients and to value innovation. And when new innovations come along, patients should have access to them. But these ideas are just kind of sloppy, quick, dirty, you know, ways of just trying to get at a problem without really thinking through the complexity of it. Not to mention it doesn't even address the broader total costs of care. You read articles all the time about rich foreigners who just come to the United States for their treatment. You're right. And you have to wonder if, you know, it's this byproduct of equity as well, wherein the haves in these foreign countries get away with not having that access in their country because they just come here. That's an aspect of it I hadn't thought of because, you know, we hear it time and time and time again, kings and princes and other affluent areas coming to the Mayo Clinic, coming to Johns Hopkins to receive their treatment. And you're you're saying that that's essentially a byproduct of that fixing of the prices, not based on kind of market value. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to ignore that. I mean, to Sue's statistic there, I mean, if you think about New Zealand in a vacuum, I can't imagine you're in a situation where you are of means and you have stage four colorectal cancer in New Zealand and a doctor says, boy, you know, they have a drug that could treat you for this, but it's not available here. Well, if I have an easily transportable family or I just have the money to fly over here, why not go to Florida or, you know, Cedar sinai or somewhere and just get treated with it? And that creates a really inequitable system. We get hammered all the time in the United States about inequities in healthcare, but at a minimum, we attempt to address that. I'm not saying we're perfect. Yeah, and so let me let me ask the legal situation. The president did this kind of campaign stunt when he announced it in September. You know, I believe he specifically said that the reason that they were moving forward with it was because uh, drug manufacturers had not worked quickly enough to solve the vaccine issue. Said that specifically. Yeah, um, and, and which which is was staggering in and of itself. So immediately when he did it, there were several lawsuits. Uh, other industry trade groups, um, companies uh, had done that. There were temporary injunctions ordered 
record that Bio, um, as well as Biocom and CLSA, the California Life Sciences Association, uh, filed actually was uh, an injunction. How is that different? It's not often you see a an agency announcement that results in four almost simultaneous federal district court filings. But you can tell just by the volume of litigation that this was something that was clearly egregious. In the lexicon of district court litigation, you live or die by how fast your court acts on things. And uh, the way this case played out, Bio was in a, a unique position in California with our partners to petition our judge to say, look, we are not in a situation where a temporary or one week or two week delay in this rule going into effect is going to address all of the problems. And so we were able to convince our judge in in California that, look, there were some significant process fouls uh, at play here by the agency in rushing this rule out in in contravention of all of the public notice and comment requirements of the of the law. And it's not often, I think, that you see a district court judge issue a nationwide injunction uh, in three pages. We lawyers like to spend hundreds <laughs> of pages on our things. John Murphy is the Deputy General Counsel for the Biotechnology Innovation Organization and was uh, the lead litigator on this uh, on this uh, uh, decision. So, John, let me ask you, you brought up the transition to the new administration. What signals, if any, are we getting that the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration, has uh, heretofore kind of been – you know, we're going to kind of cancel the things that uh, were done by the uh, Trump administration. What has been the signal here? I, I try not to read too deeply into tea leaves, but it's not often that you have the Justice Department approach you and say, look, we have this right to appeal um, to try and overturn your injunction, but we're not going to pursue that. And and they've made that case uh, public in, in, in some other court filings where they acknowledge that they're not going to seek to try and overturn the injunction blocking the implementation of the rule. If I were the Biden administration, HHS, and they have so many plans, as you mentioned, Rish, about doing new novel demonstrations and tests of different healthcare delivery and payment models, the worst thing that could happen to them is they get saddled with a really bad court decision from a Trump era rule that was just poorly thought out. And and so I, I think for, for them, it has to be a part of their calculus as to whether or not they just want to pull this back and, and start fresh. So, Sue, the proposal was targeted at Medicare beneficiaries, and it applies to injectable drugs, including some breakthroughs that we've been hearing so much about. If this rule were to have been implemented, what could the impact be on our seniors? Yeah, that's a great question. And this type of proposal relies on cutting patient access to Part B drugs by almost 20% to save money. So the whole premise of the thing is we got to cut people's access to needed medications in order to save any money, which is not a good look for a new administration when they're starting out. So I think that's that, you know, that that's something that they'll pay attention to. And then in addition to that, Part B medications generally help treat the patients that are the sickest of the sick. And a number of these drugs have no substitutes. So if you can't get access to them, you're out of luck. So for example, there are two immunotherapy drugs that are given by infusion, and they're used to treat a number of different types of advanced cancers for melanoma, lung cancer, cancers of the kidney, some tough stuff. There's drugs that are used to maintain and improve vision in people with diabetic retinopathy, diabetic edema, 
age-related macular degeneration. These are administered by injection, and there are no other FDA-approved substitutes for them. And the rule didn't really look at this stuff. So we argued in our amicus brief that the MFN rule essentially would create conditions akin to drug shortages. And that's going to result in increased patient mortality, adverse drug reactions, and hospitalizations. So this is bad all around. And we would encourage the Biden administration to stay as far away from it as possible. Let me ask you the difficult, uh, ch- the challenge, I think, for the entire you know, biotechnology industry is to connect with patients and explain it to patients. Patients really, this is deep for people who study public policy, much less a patient who is facing down cancer and has a lot of things on her mind you know, as she's facing down cancer. How do we try to educate a public Um, And in particular, how do we reach out and connect with patients? Yeah, I mean, we actually have a network that we reach out to that's uh, very aware of these issues. We've spent a number of months educating them around these cost-effectiveness analyses that insurance companies use to cut access. So we sent alerts out to them. I mean, I think the most important thing is just simplifying it down uh, and explaining it's not rocket science. When you tell people that the whole reason why they are expecting to get cost savings out of this is because there's going to be a 20% cut in getting any kind of access, that's not that hard to absorb. Also, people understand the difference between this kind of crazy dialogue back and forth with policymakers in talking about cutting drug pricing and then the difference that they experience at the pharmacy counter. That's what people care about, what comes out of their pocket. At the end of the day, we have to fix not just the perception, but they're also uh, facing high costs when they get to their drugstore. Um, so we have to fix that. What are the ways in which we can legitimately fix this without destroying the uh, innovation advantage that we in the United States have for our patients? Start with you, Sue. Sure. I want to start by saying... You know, we're so kind of tunnel vision focused on drug pricing, and it makes up about 12% of total healthcare costs. So we have a lot of work to do in hospital costs and outpatient costs. We've been running a project called Project Loop, which stands for lower out-of-pocket costs. And we advocate for two primary reforms to the Medicare prescription drug program. The first is an annual cap on out-of-pocket costs for beneficiaries in the program. Currently, there's no ceiling whatsoever for Part D drugs, and there needs to be. There needs to be a limit, and Congress had some bills uh, in this past session to do that, but they got caught up in a lot of other dialogue around what else should be done. But an out-of-pocket cap would be incredibly significant to older adults Uh, and their out-of-pocket costs. And the second policy we advocate for is smoothing, a smoothing mechanism in Part D. A lot of folks have Part D drug insurance programs where they may have a big deductible that kicks in every January. So they have to spend $1,000, $2,000 out-of-pocket before any of the coverage kicks in. Well, that's a lot, especially if you're older and you're on a fixed income. Um, Or if you get hit with a new diagnosis a couple months in, and you have high drug costs, you know, you've got to pay them all at once. But with our gas bills, you know, a whole bunch of other bills we pay, we're able to spread costs throughout the year, and that's what we want to see here. 
So instead of paying $600 in January, you can pay $50 a month. Bio is very much in, in lockstep with the alliance on the need to reform insurance practices as it relates to their longtime position that patients need to have, quote, skin in the game when it comes to their utilization of healthcare services. You know, in the Part D program and in many commercial programs, you have this patient cost sharing. But it, it, it was this flawed idea that if patients had skin in the game, they had to pay something out of pocket that they would use good judgment in their utilization of healthcare services. I mean, maybe that makes sense as it relates to the distinction between going to the ER versus going to an urgent care center or doing a telehealth visit. But like, if you have a chronic disease, you can't decide not to take your medicine. Uh, and so it, it doesn't make any sense to have skin in the game if you have cancer and an immunotherapy is the only option that will save your life. Your decision is I either take it or I die. And so there is that very strong need, I think, to do some reform of the way patients are treated by insurance companies and the way Medicare treats patients out of pocket uh, costs for insurance. So, John, let's talk a little bit about intellectual property. I mean, 80% of the companies of bio are pre-product. In other words, they don't have a product that they are selling out there. All they've got is that intellectual property. Intellectual property is, in many cases, the only asset many of our emerging stage biotech companies have, right? The idea that they're able to have patent protection on certain molecules uh, that they are developing is what effectively gives them that ability to earn a return if a product gets to the marketplace. Unlike patents on the iPhone, it, biotech patents and, and pharmaceutical patents in general are unique because we are guaranteed certain return on our investment for a very time-limited period. And then at that point, we, we effectively lose those intellectual property rights in the realm of having generic products and biosimilar products come to market. That's a bargain that the industry made years ago. And it's a very important one to ensure that we have a robust, competitive uh, pharmaceutical marketplace. The, the topic of margin rights is, is this nascent uh, rule that exists at the NIH and NIST and, and other government funders of basic research, whereby there are opportunities that exist for the government to, quote, march in and mandate that any intellectual property that was patented using grants or other federal money could, could be usurped and used by the government to license those patents to other entities to make drugs cheaper. The NIH has never utilized it for purposes of marching in on a pharmaceutical product because they recognize that it would eviscerate new investment in, in biotech and pharmaceutical products because investors would look at this and say, if the government can step in and simply use that as a way to upset the grand bargain between innovators and generics at an earlier phase, why should we... Uh, figure that any of our products in development now won't be subject to that same usurpation. It's a really dangerous path. There are incoming members of the Biden administration who are strongly on record asking the government to utilize margin rights for certain products. This, this occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic when we were desperately grasping for any opportunity to get something to market. And then when we had a couple of products early on in the phase come to market, people were angry that there wasn't enough product and they wanted to simply uh, you know, invalidate patents in, in, in an effort to try and get a, a more robust supply. And, and 
really, we recognize that that wouldn't have worked. Somebody explained to me one day that um, the the development of a drug is a marathon yeah. uh, that takes many, 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 many years. And while the NIH um, and government-funded uh, entities, they're the kind of the first leg of that relay race, if it's a marathon, they only run the first mile and a half or so before they hand it off to investors. Otherwise, taxpayers would then have to pay the billions of dollars that investors currently do. Is that accurate, John? That's exactly right, Rich. And you have to be comfortable losing your entire investment at that hope that your one in 10 shot pays off. There's a lot of basic research that is undertaken at America's academic facilities, at our universities, at our academic research centers. Uh, I, I am not aware, quite frankly, of a single drug that's sold by an academic research facility. And, and, and that's because most of these facilities have what are called tech transfer offices because they recognize that at some point, a product's development ch- matures to the point where the academic facility is just not suited to continue developing it. They need the private sector investment. They need the private sector manufacturing capabilities, its management, and they have to spin those investments out. I hear this all the time that, oh, we're putting all this investment into NIH and how are we getting it back? Research America puts out a report each year. They have a great chart that shows total R&D expenditures by funding source. And and the Alliance for Aging Research, we're big advocates for NIH funding, NIA in particular, Alzheimer's disease. So we fight for this funding every year. About 22% of total R&D is funded by the federal government. The percentage by industry, 66.7%. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, Sue is exactly right. It's oftentimes looked at, in my view, too narrowly rich as to, okay, we, we invest all this money in NIH. What do we get back from it? Well, you know, part of what we get back from that is hundreds of thousands of taxpaying biotech employees in the United States who are, you know, there because we have this entire ecosystem of investment whereby we have basic scientific research done by NIH and academic research labs that facilitates certain aspects of research and development in the early phases for biotech companies, which allows them to grow into large commercial uh, uh, biotech companies. So not only do we get the cures and the treatments that are the result ultimately of that marathon of work, but we get the... uh, we call it the multiplier effect, right? In economic development, you have, you're creating jobs, you're creating an ecosystem that feeds on itself and creates taxpayers for the purposes of the U.S. coffer. It's not like they're getting nothing from that stuff. Well, listen, I really appreciate uh, both of your all's time today. Um, And let's hope that, you know, even in a very divisive time for our country, uh, that uh, calmer heads will prevail with uh, both in Congress and at the administration. We can sit down and and come up with some really robust solutions uh, because this really is going to mean life and death to some of our patients. Sue and John, thanks so much. that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice, or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and your friends. Also, with two COVID vaccines now authorized and a third potentially on the way, we need your help to end this pandemic. Please help us spread truth and stop the spread of the coronavirus. Get the facts on vaccination at covidvaccinefacts.org.